You're listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Well, welcome back to Post Growth Australia podcast, World International Corruption Day special. And I'm sitting here with Dr. Cameron Murray. How are you, Cameron? I'm terrific. Thanks for having me, Michael. Now, I had to pay a lot of money to get you on here, but luckily I can claim this on tax against my 10th negatively geared property because the other day I had a lunch with one of the major party politicians um, and it's absolutely amazing what they agree to after the third glass of Grange. So um, (laughs) this is just between you and I. So, yeah. Yeah, you better better edit that out. (laughs) Cameron, tell Tell us a little about yourself, uh, your various expertise, your many expertise, and what you're most passionate about. Yeah, so currently I'm a researcher at the Henry Halloran Trust at the University of Sydney. So I mostly look at housing and planning, housing supply, and the the academic debates that go on uh, in the housing market, which are you know pretty important for a lot of people. Uh, and you know, as you mentioned. Uh, Investment properties are a big share of people's wealth, people's homes are these days, you know, their ATM machines and their retirement. So that, that's what I do at the moment. But um, between 2012 and 2016, I did a PhD uh, in economics, the economics of corruption. And, and that was looking at, you know, rezoning as one example in Australia, but also I ran experiments uh, on, in, in computer games, getting different people to play and see how they acted, just so I could unpick what what's really going on. I think we have some oversimplified ideas. Um, so that's, that's what I do at the moment. And, and prior to that, I've worked in government departments, I've worked for pro- property developers and things like that. Um, so that, that's what I... Yeah, well, it sounds like you're the ideal interviewee for International Anti-Corruption Day. And um, I've sometimes joked that popular perception calls corruption corruption in the global south and political donations in the global north, and particularly the closer we are to home, which obfuscates the scale and severity of the problem. Uh, How do you define corruption and how rife is it in Australia compared to the world stage and how accurate is my joke? Uh, Your joke's pretty spot on, to be honest. Um, You know, it's called a bribe when you go to India or Indonesia or something like that. But here it's called a participation in democracy through a political donation. Um, You know, uh, although I'll get to the details later, but donations are actually not specifically bribes, which is what I initially thought. And that's something that's come out in my, my research. So um, I, I, I'm very wary of the word corruption. I'm wary of it because it implies two things. One, that someone did a corrupt act. That means that you've, you've uh, behaved in a way that contravenes a specific uh, legal requirement on your behavior and secondly that you've got a personal benefit for doing a corrupt act it's a very legalistic definition and i've participated in many um uh inquiries into corruption and 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 conferences with anti-corruption lawyers and they have a very strict meaning for corruption which is not what i like to use i like to use the term political favoritism because a lot of the decisions that we see that the average person in the public thinks should be corrupt when a politician favours a mate, when a politician leaves office on Friday and is a lobbyist on Monday for the developer they just rezoned uh, last week, um, you know, we, we, we think it should be corrupt, but the lawyers say that's not corruption. So I, I say, well, it doesn't matter if it's legal or illegal. If it's political favouritism, then I think we should care about the results of those decisions where um, they're driven by political favoritism. Um, and so what you find in Australia, for example, is that a lot of what would be corruption elsewhere is just the normal way of doing business here. So hiring lobbyists, uh, former politicians working in industry groups that uh, to lobby for those industries in areas where they used to be the regulator and they still know everybody who works in those departments. These, this is totally normal behaviour. 
if you look at the banking regulator, you know, almost all their staff used to work, uh, they rotate in and out of the banks that are meant to be regulated. I've worked at the Queensland regulator and had former colleagues show up on Monday uh, the next week on the other side of the table lobbying for the guy we're supposed to regulate, knowing everything they know uh, internally about what we're capable of doing as the regulator. So it's it's completely normal, um, a lot of what should be corrupt. So that's my sort of big picture perspective. perspective. If, and if you want to think about Australia, um, you know, we do things like turning lobbyists into statutory authorities. So we have a group called Infrastructure Australia that began as essentially a lobbyist organization for construction companies. And now it's a statutory authority that provides, you know, advice to the government on infrastructure priorities. So we almost formalize corruption in many ways. We entrench political favoritism. So, so yeah, I don't like the word corruption. I just like political favoritism, whether it's legal, illegal, entrenched, a bribery, you name it. Okay, so now, from now on, December 9th is International Political Favoritism Day. <laughs> Good. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that would, I think that would, you know, tune people into it more. Um, you would be less focused on donations and what I would call petty sort of actions and more focused on the big picture, highly costly political decisions. And I think that's important. Um, One thing um, that I like to make sure you think about is, is this corruption important or is this political favoritism important? Does it cost everybody who loses, who's not being favoured, does it cost them much or not? Is it relatively inconsequential? Um, And should we just focus where the costs are higher? So um, I, th- I think if you, yeah, call it political favoritism, people would be more focused on those sort of economic outcomes rather than corrupt acts. Yeah, and I suppose corruption, it, it, the, the focus is on one evil, McCavillan, you know, villain like bribing a politician. And after reading most of your co-authored book, Gave of Mates, published in 2017, there were a few things in the book that surprised even a young cynic like me. Um, one was the insight that most property developers and government mates often start with good idealistic intentions, but because of the way the industry works, they become caught up in the cogs of the culture and become corrupt them or um, <laughs> whatever themselves without even realising it. Yeah. Could this be why public outcry isn't often directed towards a property industry itself, perhaps due to the fact that property developers don't make as obvious boo his villains compared to some of the mining magnates out there, for example. Look, that's a really good point. Um, I, th- I think, yes, that's, that's true. If you have a system of favouritism where many, many individuals do their little bit for their team, <laughs> you don't have a villain and you don't have a good media story. I've actually encountered this many times in the last few years since our book came out um, that I've tried to explain to journalists, you know, this person may have behaved in this way at this point in time, but that's not the only thing that's going on here. That, that one act, that one meeting, that one donation didn't change the decision that you think it did. It's part of a system with many people operating for their collective interests And they can't, that never gets on the TV or the radio. It gets edited out because what sells in the media is a story with a hero and a villain. What doesn't sell is a story where many people are operating in an unregulated environment and stealing billions from the rest of us, but I can't tell you who the villain is because everybody started with good intentions. That's just, it's, you can't sell that can't sell that story so it never gets out i mean it's in the book game of mates but even then a lot of people still read the book and and miss that message and turn around and say i told you this guy was evil i said no they're not all evil they're doing what feels right they're human beings when everybody you socialize with is telling you you're great for rezoning all this land and that they're going to build the houses of your kids, it feels good. It feels like you're doing what's good for society. 
you you don't switch your brain on and think in this detached objective way and say well why would i favor them and not someone else and how does this cost society it's totally human nature to get caught up in that and feel like what you're doing is right for society because you know you've got to build new houses somewhere why wouldn't i rezone land owned by developers who want to build new houses like that's kind of my job but until you think well hang on a minute it's great that i'm rezoning them but why do they get all these new property rights for free why don't we sell them to them instead so that the public gets the benefit rather than going straight to their bottom line and they can still build houses unless you switch your brain on it's very difficult to do because people are caught up in this environment that insulates them from different ways of thinking. Um, unless you think like that, it, it makes perfect sense to act that way. And when you get that discretion in your decision to, to shift the process, the governmental process towards that outcome, because it seems like the right thing to do. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's really important. And so in mining, uh, yeah, when you have these personalities, it's much easier to tell that hero villain story. Um, but again, when Kevin Rudd tried to implement the minerals resources rent tax, it was the lobbying was activated like never before seen. I've been told by people who work in Parliament House that there were limousines queued all around Canberra of miners and their families and executives' families inviting politicians to you know, luxury weddings on tropical islands and big holidays and offering them jobs and things like that. Um, you know, that, that happens still. But, yeah, the, the whole uh, villain story is, is not the normal way. And I guess it links back to why I don't like the word corruption because that sort of implies there's a villain who was corrupt, not that there is an easily gameable system where everybody involved uh, works towards the same outcome and sort of reciprocates favours over time with their mates at a huge economic cost to the rest of us. That's a different story. And I guess the other issue with property development is it's something that we're all uh, to some level, even without us knowing it, financially involved and shareholders it in. Like, you know, any um, property owner who negatively gears uh, needs to keep the system going. Anyone with superannuation. Uh, in a past life, I was involved in a probably well-intended environmental groups like 350.org, especially their divestment campaigns. Um, I remember spending a whole morning fitting inside a huge letter V with a bunch of other well-meaning people <laughs> that could spell divest from the air. And then, then I uh, bothered to research it and discovered all ethical ethical superannuation companies invest in property development companies such as Stocklands, thereby feeding the property sector for decades to come. And this is why um, the Victorian Premier, like Daniel Andrews, brags about um, his government pouring the most amount of concrete of any government, like it's some lovely progressive thing. I mean, is this an example of the property sector infiltrating into everyone's lives to make it harder for them to rebel against one of the larger contributors to CO2 emissions, wildlife clearance and social inequity, especially since property developers, um, if I read your book correctly, pocket, pocket $11 billion away from the public purse? Yeah, so, I mean, that is that is a dilemma. But, um, you know, I think it's very difficult to come up with what is ethical in this situation. Um, so imagine you work for Stockland and you want to develop housing estates, but you your competitors always seem to keep getting these favourable rezonings and advantageous um, you know, infrastructure investments and transport investments um, that keep undermining you. What, what do you do? I, like to be in the game, that's how you have to play. So there is no choice to be ethical and participate in housing development. Like the, those are mutual exclusive alternatives. You have to play the game that's in front of you. And so as much as I'd say, you know, the executives at these large listed developers want to, um, you know, have sensible and fair processes in town planning, if everybody else is going to get favoured, you need to be in on the game as well. Um, otherwise, you're not in the game. And I, I worked for property developers, and that was our that was our attitude: is 
well, this is our business. We're either in it or we go home. You can't just um, get beaten every time and, and not build anything or not make any money. So, and, and you're right also that the, the interests of the property owners in general also align with this industry. So, you know, people feel like, you know, one day I'll subdivide my house and that'll be me and I don't want any impediments <laughs> to, to that happening. So you can certainly see how how limited the scrutiny can be. Although, you know, if we look, um, there's a lot of focus of anti-corruption bodies on just some of the most egregious examples of favoritism in, in property rezoning. A lot of people think that um, political favoritism or corruption is a selfish act, but the way I see it is that it's a pro-social act it's about looking after your mates and nothing feels as good as being pro-social and looking after your your friends. So the way the way I sort of see this going is if to get to get a system of political favoritism going, you need what I call a grey gift. So you need some discretionary decision that provides a large economic gain for the person receiving it, whether person who makes the decision doesn't have to incur the cost. So if I give you a gift like a birthday present, it costs me exactly what I paid to give it to you, the benefit to you. But if I'm a politician and I change the tax rules so that, uh, you know, your coal mine doesn't have to, um, you know, uh, repair the the land and and fill in their mine at the end of the uh, lease, then that Decision costs me nothing, but it's got a huge financial gain to you. So that's a sort of grey gift. And once you have these types of decisions happening in politics routinely, they're the areas where these networks will form to get favoured. So rezoning is a classic one. I draw a line on a map and say this area is housing, it's not agriculture. Immediately the value rockets. It costs me nothing personally, but it costs society because we could have sold those additional rights to you. To get those grey gifts, this is the other trick, you need a group. It's very difficult in Australia to simply bribe an individual decision maker and get a decision that's worth a lot of money to you. What you need is a group of allies who reciprocate incremental favours over a long period of time uh, where when a politician has the chance to direct a Um, a decision or when they get to choose who sits on a panel that makes a decision or when they get to choose who to invite to a meeting or when they get to choose something, they, they always shift towards that group of mates. And that group of mates, like a mafia, like an informal network, learns to reciprocate within that network to others over time. So you see the revolving door of people offering jobs to reward each other for previous favors, et cetera. So, you know, um, I often tell people, why would I bribe someone? That's the stupidest thing when I can promise them a cushy board seat when they retire from politics and give them maybe 50 or 100 times more cash in their pocket. All they've got to do is wait a few years. You know, so it's this long-term game within a group. The, The immediate thing that comes into mind is from your perspective, is there an insight of the consequences that will happen to the people who are not your mates? Like is there a thing in the consciousness Uh, that goes um, I'm actually hurting people who don't know me or is there cognitive dissonance where what I'm doing is providing homes for people and increasing the GDP and is that what goes on? You're exactly right. So I did a computer experiment where um, groups could allocate um, make discretionary decisions over time about who got a, a, a favoured. And what happened is that um, there were groups of four. What happened was pairs of people would find each other and reciprocate each round to favour their mate rather than do what's in the interest of the whole group. And in this computer experiment, we paid real money to the people who participated. I had thousands of students come through. And what I found is in 80% of the, the um, games that we played that a group formed, a group of mates formed and stole money 
off the other two players. And I think it was like $40 cash in an hour. And what was, what was most interesting is that when I surveyed them before they left the room about how they played the game, those who had a mate who made them more, more money, but it came at a cost to the outsiders, they felt good about it. They were the happiest. They felt great. They felt like they were doing their friend a favor. And I even had people who um, I had explained the game to to help me test the coding. And I had a robot play the other players and they got seduced into reciprocating with a robot because it felt good to get this payoff and reward someone who was rewarding you. And they, at the end, I said, what are you doing? You've just, you know, stolen money off that person, given it to this other person. They're like, oh God, I didn't even realize. I just, it felt like the right thing to do. And so I think that's important. Um, uh, It's important to understand that you're not dealing with, um, you know, uh, the villains from some superhero film that have planned in their basements for decades how to ruin the world. These are just normal people in situations where it feels good to favour their mates. Um, and, and one way that you find who's, who's a mate and who's not is, is what I call signals. So the way I see political donations working is as loyalty signals. It's a little bit like I say it's, it's uh, political donations are the equivalent of facial tattoos in the mafia. They show others that you're going to reciprocate, that, that you're loyal, that you're not going to dob, dob anybody in. And it's, an, you know, it's an, another way to, to entrench that loyalty because it's a long-term game of reciprocity. You're not going to get paid back immediately. You're not going to get paid back directly by the same person quite often. Um, so you need to know who's in your group and who's not in your group. You need to go to the right schools, join the right clubs, be in the right golf club, go to the horse races, be seen at the right places, go to industry breakfast and whatever signals you can use. The last thing that happens in political favoritism is there is a, the insiders need to generate myths and stories to ensure that when the public sees them operating, they have a way of saying that, no, 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 what's good for our mates is actually good for everybody. So if you look in housing, um, all the development industry and lobbyists and now the government will say, oh, if we don't rezone these developers, you know, it's housing affordability will suffer and no one will build houses. That's a, that's a great story. Um, a lot of the, you know, public debt, that sort of stuff, that's always a good story. Oh, I'm really worried about public debt. We can't do this. We have to do this. We have to privatise this. Public debt, that's a good cover story. Um, you know, minerals, resources, rent tax. We can't implement that tax. Sovereign risk. There's my myth. There's my story. So you end up with a sort of um, public debate that is fueled by the myth-making of vested interests. And if they're very good at it, it just becomes the common sense accepted wisdom. It's very hard to break down because everybody who recites it doesn't, they feel like it's the right thing. <laughs> they don't know they're being played. So that's, that's sort of how I see at a high level political favoritism going in Australia. And, and I think, you know, for people who read Game of Mates, it's really helpful for them to uh, be able to structure how they think about it and go, oh, why did I observe this? Oh, they're myth-making. Oh, why did I observe this? Oh, that's because they're signaling to their group. That means I can expect that group to repay a favour in the future because I've observed that loyalty signal. So that's that's how I see it. And I think that the dilemma is that, you know, people feel like they're doing the right thing when they're in the group. So you can't just say be ethical, do the right thing, because that's what they feel like they're doing. What you need to do is entrench processes that are very hard to, um, uh, that processes that make it very hard to give away favours, even if you want to, and processes that make favours that are given away very economically costly costless or make the payoff lower so when i talk about rezoning i say well you should sell the additional rights at market prices rather than giving additional rights for free to somebody who bought an agricultural piece of land zoned for agriculture and goes oh sorry guys i bought the wrong piece of land i meant to buy one zone for housing can you just fix that for me i know i would have had to pay 10 times as much but just give me that for free i like to think about um, jury type systems so if you think about the legal system 
if you had a professional judges deciding criminal cases, we know you immediately become corrupted by organized crime. So we have a, a, a system that we must follow that makes it very hard to know how to corrupt that process. And even if a judge wanted to favor someone, it would be very difficult for them if they were obliged to have a jury in the court. So those are, those are some examples of, of where we should be thinking to minimize corruption. Now, speaking of myths, um, you know, I know town planners who've been to, you know, the courts and the justification for subdividing on you know, ecologically fragile land is, oh, the population's growing, so we have no choice, um, as if, you know, these same people weren't in, in also investing in the story of ongoing population growth. Now, last year you presented at a Sustainable Population Australia seminar in Brisbane on the economic myths of ageing, and this year SPA released a discussion paper entitled Silver Tsunami or Silver Lining, Why We Should Not Fear an Ageing Population. So apart from the plug there, in summary, um, why is ageing population an ongoing myth that feeds into the other ongoing myth of endless population growth for the finite planet? Over to you. <laughs> Look, the population thing I always find puzzling. Everyone says we need more people. I said, well, you know, we don't need everybody to be alive at the same time. You know, you can have people live, uh, you can have 7 million billion people alive at the same time for 10,000 years or you can have 20 billion alive for 5,000 years. You know, um, nobody thinks about it that way. Uh, so the population myth, I mean, that's just a, you know, that's fueled by a lot of industries. So if you're an industry that has a captive local market um, and minimal threat of competition, so if you're a newspaper, an Australian newspaper, what's one way to grow your business? Get more people to read it, okay? That you can't expand abroad. You can't sell Australian local news <laughs> to, to Asia and to Europe. So one way to do it is a captured market, you know, get more people. If you're a housing developer, you obviously want more people. You know, if you construct roads and bridges, you want more people. Um, it's the easy way. It's the easy way to just keep plugging away and doing what you're doing. You know, it, it's difficult to upgrade a bridge or build a tunnel instead of a bridge or, you know, do something new or different or, you know, start a space program or something you've never done before. But it's very easy to just do the same thing you've done but twice as much. Um, so, yeah, the ageing myth really works well. And, but, you know, I don't think most people believe it. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's I'm going to go out there and say most people don't believe it because any time we invent a new medicine or health treatment, everyone cheers. And I wonder, well, that's interesting because people are going to live longer now. I thought you said that was a problem that we're living longer because we're, we're seeing sort of ageing, we're, we're missing that it's actually the outcome of this fantastic health revolution <laughs> the last, uh, you know, 60 or 70 years. Well, what do you think is going to happen if you keep improving health, people's health? They're going to get older on average. Um, so I think that's it's a weird thing, um, a very weird thing. I don't think people believe it. The panic over COVID tells me people don't believe it because if you're worried about aging, that is the solution. You let old people die younger. But pe people, you know, you switch your brain off. It's very easy to, to believe. Um, and, and the other thing about aging is, is a lot of what we're observing is this temporary uh, demographic bulge of the baby boomers just shifting through the, the population pyramid. And you can't solve a temporary bulge with any type of long-run uh, you know, change. You just have to let it pass. And so, you know, we had the big boom of um, in population in working age people uh, when the baby boomers entered the workforce, and now they're leaving. Uh, yep, that's fine. It was no big issue then, and it's no big issue now. Uh, and we use these outdated things like this age dependency ratio with this fifteen to sixty four year old population. I mean, no 15-year-old works full-time. Like, that's not a metric of people contributing to the formal economy. Um, and, and nobody cares when we have uh, this big push to get more people into tertiary education and we take them out of the workforce. That does exactly the same thing as, uh, as ageing in terms of the proportion of people working in this age bracket. So I just, I just don't think people really care. It's just a good excuse for high immigration. I, I'll tell you a funny story because um, I, I was invited to this, um, you know, this fancy lunch at a golf club at Springfield Lakes, west of Brisbane, 
and uh, it was hosted by the Australian Davos Group. And uh, they're all talking about population and how, how do we house all this great big population and stuff. And I heard all these reports from developers saying, oh, you know, if we don't have all this immigration, we'll get older. And I'm like, okay, well, you haven't really thought about it. They obviously just want to sell houses, right? And then someone said, but what happens if there's a, you know, climate catastrophe and in, in, in the Pacific and, and we need to take many climate refugees? I said, well, that's easy, right? Because you just keep telling me you can house 50,000 people in this new housing estate. We'll just put them there. You're in the business of supplying houses, right? And they're like, oh, no, uh, uh, no, no, we don't want them here. We actually aren't in that business. <laughs> I would like very wealthy uh, immigrants to come only if they can buy our houses. You know, come on, guys, um, be a bit real. Um, don't don't just give away your financial motives that that easily. <laughs> so I, I find it um, it's bizarre. And my general conclusion on 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 immigration is that it's a social choice about how we integrate globally. You don't have to rehash all this nonsense about the economic need of this and that. It's totally fine. <laughs> you know, at the worst case scenario, our age dependency ratio is going to be roughly where it was in the eighties. You know. Where was the catastrophe? I didn't don't recall that being a catastrophic time. Um, let's just talk about it in a reasonable, you know, social, political, and environmental way. Um, anyway, that's it's one of my bugbears, and yeah, one of those myths that a lot of people you can, you can convince a surprising amount of people when you put it down on paper, but some people just don't want to change their mind or, or accept accept the facts in many ways. I know it's if you keep champion this myth and then you have to deal with the inconvenience that migrants also age if you try to uh, inject working age people to to stop the demographic which is is very inconvenient of them <laughs> yeah I, look no one I, it's very easy to show you just literally like a few few calculations and you can go oh yeah if we add young people but we don't keep doing it, you can you either get this exponential blowout in population or you just delay the same effect um, it's very easy to show, but people don't want to, you know, use their brains most of the time. They like to feel good, say what other people are saying in my group. If I keep going to lunches where people say this and they, you know, have qualifications and they're rich and they look after me, I feel good saying it. I don't want to switch my brain on and question it. It's very difficult that for a human being to actually do that. We're pro-social creatures. So, um, yeah, it can be lonely, uh, the myth-busting. Less lunches for a start. <laughs> that seems to be where all the trouble happens. <laughs> yeah, look, I think, I think the reality is every group has their stories that, that provide their, their, you know, their backstory and the mythology, um, and that's what makes it a group. They all believe the same thing. So they don't like people coming around and telling them, uh, from outside that, you know, that's wrong. It makes you guys feel good and it brings you together, but you're allowed to look at the facts. <laughs> well, the same thing happens in the left and any um, group, you know. You're attracted towards the people that give you the social affirmation, the social bias, and you boo-hiss the people that dare to disagree with you. So I, I can tell you I've lost hundreds of followers on Twitter the last few weeks um, basically pointing out hypocrisy when it comes to US politics and the left losing their mind. I kind of feel like it's worth, it's worth filtering out my networks. And I, I make a point of following people I disagree with on social media in all sorts of different groups. You know, the thoughtful and intelligent people from different groups who articulate their point of view uh, well because it, it trains you not to get sucked into this group mythology mentality because what you're seeing each day is very well articulated, you know, half a dozen alternative interpretations of something from different people in different groups, you know, the far left socialist group, you know, the AOC type US um, lefties and then you got the Trump guys and then you got other people and you're just like, oh, okay, I can see how you can take the same fact and interpret it different ways with your own sort of intellectual and your own mythology. Um, I, I can see it. 
and it's it's good it's good mental training. Um, let's broaden the scope here a little bit to the world stage and the world economic stage. So, the evidence seems to be in that deregulated, privatised societies that are hell bent on growth as a measure of success um, end up with winding inequity and widening wealth gaps and uh, more of these games of mates games playing over time so from your expertise why is this so and what is it about some other countries such as new zealand and the scandinavian countries um, that have kind of stopped them falling down the same rabbit hole to make the same extent as australia yeah good good question i'm look i'm not sure um it's not. I don't think it's always the case that deregulation or privatisation are, are uh, the ingredients for corruption. I actually see there's a good case for privatisation as a solution to corruption, where there is a very powerful government department or government-run organisation that is in the business of um, essentially using that power to favour their mates and and look after their mates. And if you privatise or deregulate or allow some competition. Um, that it's going to sort of crush that little cartel. <laughs> it may eventually lead to another cartel, but, you know, maybe it's a few decades' time and then you might want to think of another solution. I, I'm a big fan of trial and error policy. If you've got a private company that's a monopolist that's, you know, taking advantage of that position, then just, you know, um, nationalise it. If you've got a dysfunctional national monopoly in an area well maybe privatize it maybe add some competition if you know all institutions degrade over time and i think the opportunity to refresh them is is worthwhile so on on the on the countries that that are hell-bent on growth i guess i see it differently i mean new zealand uh The economic growth in New Zealand has not always outperformed Australia. They have similar inequality issues. They have a lot of educational inequality issues. Um, A lot of the difference in that sort of what I'll call the Anglosphere and and the East Asian countries or the the continental European countries is a lot of their own mythology. They've told stories about who they are and what their nation represents, and that that helps stop new myths about the budget or you know, competition or whatever the myth is in that area that leads to, you know, some of the what I would call nonsense privatizations where there's really no chance of competition. You're just literally taking profits for the public and giving it to your mates. Um, so that that's part of it. But I think the other interesting thing where I might push back and is that I think a lot of this is not driven by a desire for economic growth. I think a desire for economic growth is one of those other myths, another cover story for doing what you want to help your mates. Because, um, you know, if, if you were really into economic growth, you would, you would do what works. You would have a lot of public investment in new technology and manufacturing. You'd have state-owned enterprises um, pushing your economy into new industries where you weren't before whether that's in some high-tech manufacturing, whether it's, you know, lithium batteries, whether it's space, whether it's nuclear power, you, you name it. You would, be, you would be facilitating that as much as you could, doing things that you'd never done before. That's what the rapid development of the East Asian, you know, the Asian tigers, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, China, they didn't get there by privatizing or specializing or balancing their budgets. They got there the old-fashioned way of, the way Australia did, in fact, after the, the um, Second World War, we had really active industrial policy. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's I, – I don't think the pursuit of growth is really a drive. I think that's a, a convenient excuse for many of these policies, yeah. I just recall one thing that was so curious to me in your book um, when you said when – and sorry if I'm paraphrasing incorrectly here, but when neoliberalism came along, that was response to a game of mates that was peaking in the late 70s. So that kind of um, cleared cleared the playing field a, a little bit. And, um, you know, I've been raising my stories to see neoliberalism as the enemy, but it, so it was interesting to see it 
in that light and to challenge some of my preconceptions. Yeah, so I think that's right. Like, yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm anti isms. People go, "Oh, you're just a neoliberal. You're just a this. You're just a socialist. You're a this." It's just an excuse not to talk about the details of something, right? You know, and, and a lot of a lot of these are used as as stories to justify particular policies. And it's I, I see sometimes you can tell the same story from a neoliberal perspective or a socialist perspective and you can sort of argue for the same policy from any different angle i'm more of a case-by-case person (laughs) Um, since covid turned everything upside down modern monetary theory and ubi have become more popular in the uh, social syntax and indeed have been implemented maybe to some extent by governments globally to tide us through the worst of lockdowns. May this be an unveiling of the lies told to us by government through their corporate sponsors that governments can never go into debt and therefore enormous infrastructure projects must be privatised and told for generations to come. Yeah, no, that's right. Look, I I think as I've been saying, a lot of the story about balancing the budget is is not because governments want to balance the budget, it's because they don't like doing the thing that someone's arguing for. They don't want to spend money on that, they'd rather spend it on something else. So modern monetary theory, you know, it's great that this this, um, huge education of people that the budget is, is not a hard constraint it's a soft constraint um, that's terrific but it was never a political constraint it was always a story and if you if you debunk that story another story will emerge to justify the things that you know groups in power want to do and to uh, justify not doing what they don't want to do so I think that's, um, you know, because privatisation never really made economic sense except if you thought there was some uh, innovation or uh, that would be fostered by a competitive sort of ecology of, of companies because all you're doing is tra- trading that future income from owning that asset for the present value of that asset. Now, why would a government... Um, want to essentially liquidate its assets so urgently when it's the most patient um, asset owner in the economy. It doesn't, it doesn't make economic sense to privatise money to get cash for the budget, privatise income generating assets to get cash for the budget. It's, it's never made economic sense. So, you know, it, it was always a cover story or a myth. So it's great that we're, you know, we're, um, cutting down one myth but another one will spring up that's for sure and the question is how do you tell better stories and make your own better myths to get your stories that support you know the policy direction you want to go how do you get those to spread better and i think that's the art of politics Um, how do you spread your story Um, and it's very interesting to watch politics through the lens of I'm I'm creating stories. So last question for you, Cameron, um, and, and thank you. This has been in- incredible. I've just learned so much um, from, from reading your book and speaking to you. You know, I've uh, genuinely just learned so much. It's incredible. So I, I really want to ask your opinion here. Instead of the economy and society that we have in Australia at the moment, indeed the prevailing stories, what in your ideal world would a set of stories that you would prefer to see instead if you had your way? (laughs) Look, the ideal economy with the ideal stories, look, I don't, to get very meta, I don't think there is a uh, an equilibrium endpoint, you know, there is a process. So what process would I be um, happy with? Look, I, one thing I, I think is missing, maybe that's the way I'll answer. I'll tell you what I think is missing from the economic stories and that if we're going to go, because uh, there's a lot of good things in Australia. I, I, I can assure you, even though some things th- seem dysfunctional, you'd just be surprised. I think I- I've had a-, a lot of experience in the public health system in Queensland, you know, kids getting injured, going to hospital. It is amazing how well this system works. And, and sometimes it baffles me. How do they even do this? How do they know 
How do they roster these people on? What if a doctor gets sick and you're stuck there? And how do they know? How, like it blows my mind how good some some things are or how well they work despite all obstacles. And I think we should appreciate them when we have them. Um, and, so, and, I, and I think, you know, stories that, that tell that, that, look, it's working really well. You know, we should benchmark ourselves. We should strive to keep it like that. We don't want systems that work well to degrade. And I think that, so that's an important sort of what maybe where I differ is I don't like to say, hey, this is our solution. I like to say, well, things that are working, we need to support because all organizations degrade. Okay. They generate internal conflicts. There's people defending their turf. Um, you know, you lose sight of the organization's objectives because your department wants to get this or that. But where I want to push the country is, is, is to, towards greater diversity of physical economic production. What do I mean by that? So the story we've been told, you know, the neoliberal story, the economic story, whatever this origin of the story is, is that countries get rich by specialization. Therefore, Australia's got lots of coal. We've got to dig it all up. Oh, we've got gas. We've got to dig that up. You know, we shouldn't make cars here because other countries are better at it and we should specialize in, in whatever, coal, fishing, I don't know, you know, agriculture. But countries don't get rich and grow by specializing. Individual units can specialize but those units have to operate in an ecology that is diverse. Think about a forest. I like to use the forest as an analogy for the economy. Different plant species specialize in their niche. You know, some are in the shade, some have deep roots, some su- survive, you know, on you know, their succulents, some of this, some of that. They all have their niche. But what makes a strong and robust forest is that you have many different niches and many different species. And that's true of countries as well. Um, and if you look at the Asian tigers, they got rich not by specializing in fishing and rice. I mean, Japan was a rice and fishing country for hundreds of years. How did they didn't, they're not known for that now. How did they get rich? Hmm, they did things they'd never done before. They used government powers to create railroads they use them to invest in steel and making ships and all these different, you know, nuclear power, everything, you name it, very high-tech things that were never done before. And if you look at the rankings of countries by diversity of their economic activity, Australia has fallen, I think, from 19 to 59. We've got, we're, we're near Cameroon, I think, in our economic diversity metrics, where we used to be in the top 20 near Canada. This is all in the last 40 years. And that's because we, we let our sort of manufacturing ex- export-based diet because we told each other stories that that was a bad thing. And in the process, we entrenched those owners of mineral monopolies, essentially. So I think that's really important. Um, diverse countries are more stable. They grow faster. They're less vulnerable to shocks. So Australia is now very exposed to the international um, you know, resources markets because we don't have a very diverse economic base. And I think that's somewhere we should push. It, it gives people more uh, career opportunities in different fields, you know. It's, 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 a, it's a great thing and it's, it's only now re-emerging in the development economics literature as a really key missing part. It got, it got, um, got hidden or it got overtaken by the, the myth of specialization for many decades, but it's, it's re-emerging now. And I think that's a good thing. And I would like to see, uh, more of Australia's elites and politicians, um, come together and tell stories around that and push the country in that direction. Yeah, and there's only so much digging shit out of the ground and uh, speculating on property and giving coffees to everyone before it all starts to get a bit samey after a while, isn't it? Well, so. I, yeah, it is a bit samey, but you can, you can do that for a long time. But uh, I, I, it's a bit like the population question. I tell people, why do you have to get all the coal out of the ground today? It's still going to be there. You can either get it all out in 20 years at this rate or you can get it all out in 100 years at one-fifth the rate. Why, why is one better than the other? Um, how do you know it's not going to be worth more in 50 years' time than it's worth today? 
it's it's not obvious um, what the optimal thing to do is. But if we know that there are benefits from diversification, then we can shift towards that. We can shift as a whole, as an economy, through the layers of state and federal policy uh, away from get all the stuff out of the ground as quick as possible to let's add a lot of value and try and produce things we've never produced before and participate uh, in these cutting-edge markets around the world. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time, Cameron. It's been great. Um, if people are keen to stop the game of mates in Australia or at least put in a new story, um, what are your recommendations for things they can do right now or very soon? Further, if people are keen on following your good work, where can they find out more about you? Look, I think participating is, is, is great, um, but participate, join different groups, see things from other perspectives, um, that's, you know, it's, it's got to be um, part of the recipe. And, and I tell people politics as a process works, works better with more, a greater mix of people. And I think, um, you know, I like having independence, even if I don't agree with them, in the mix in politics because, it, you know, it, 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 infor- it forces people to think outside what their party says. Yeah, it forces you to see that different view. And so you get a nice mix there and you get a bit of criticism about some of the the stories that are being told. So I think, you know, promote independence and minor parties where you can. Um, Get out of your bubble and see different stories and see how they work. Um, And then follow me on social media and uh, read my book, Game of Mates. So you can find me on Twitter uh, at Dr. Cameron Murray and fresheconomicthinking.com is my website. Uh, Gameofmates.com is also the book website. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find online. Mm-hmm. So my recommendation to everyone is to follow Cameron on Twitter because it sounds like you lost a few people the last couple of weeks. So. <laughs> uh, only if you're doing it to get out of your bubble and uh, and be challenged and 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 see see how people who have other stories in their head think uh, about events. Yep. <laughs> well, if you're up for the challenge, we'll definitely provide the links. So thank you so much, um, Cameron, for your time. It's been great. Thanks for having me, Michael. Had a great time.